0: We're going to take a little detour off of the uh, normal path of uh, going through 1 John. We're coming close to the end of 1 John, but we're going to detour off of that for the Advent season. And during the Advent season, these next four weeks, we're going to focus on um, Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, as seen in the Gospels. And each one of the Gospels describes for us um, a certain characteristic of Christ. And his ministry on the earth. When we think about the idea of Advent, the uh, meaning of the term is is his coming or arrival. And so we we think of two Advents that are one that has taken place and one that is going to take place. Um, The first Advent, Jesus Christ came into this world to um, ask the Lamb of God. Uh, John tells us he came to um, pay the price for our sins. He came to serve Um, He came to establish for us the potential for a kingdom. Jesus Christ did not come the first time to reign on the earth. Um, That will be the second advent in which Christ will establish his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. And then his kingdom will be an eternal kingdom. Um, But his first coming was for the purpose of laying down his life so that we could be saved. Uh, ultimately so that we could have, so that there could be people in the kingdom. And when the kingdom comes at his second advent, there will be um, many, we don't know how many, but there will be many people who will be able to go into his kingdom and enjoy um, his reign here on this earth. And really, as Christians, that's what we look forward to, isn't it? It's not, the, it's not what we deal with every day right now, but we are we are honestly looking forward to there being a, a true literal kingdom established on this earth in which Jesus Christ sits on his throne and there's righteousness and there's justice, and there's um, um, there's purity, um, all of the things that Christians hope for and look for and try to be every day of our lives. We are um, promised in God's Word that, that those things are going to become a reality for us. And that really is what the Christmas season is all about. It's about remembering the, the coming of Christ the first time and uh, a reminder, or, or if you will, an um, encouragement that there is going to be a second coming of Christ. And um, we look forward to that. So we look back to when he came the first time to know that we have salvation. We look forward to when he's going to come the second time to experience really the, the fulfillment of that salvation, the, it all coming to fruition. And uh, we look forward to that second coming. So in Matthew, and we're going to be, uh, you'll have to forgive me throughout this study, it's going to be very um, scattered, will be throughout the books. So I'll try to, um, if you want to turn there with me, you can. Some of the things I'll just read off of my notes but my encouragement to you is that you just listen, uh, think through what we're, what we're, what's being said, and uh, that you'll be able to gain through this an appreciation for who Christ is, what he has done, and the hope for the future. In addition to that, I also um, pray that you'll, when you read the Gospels, you'll read them a little bit, maybe a little bit differently. How many of you have ever, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've ever read the Gospels and here hear are four letters, right, written about the same person, yet there are some pretty heavy-duty contradictions or not contradictions necessarily, but differences. And, and some people have even concluded that there are contradictions. We don't believe that there are because the Word of God does not contradict itself. But there are, there are theologians out there that have used the Gospels to try to disprove the um, inerrancy of the Word of God. And we need to know why we see these differences. We would think we'd have four books written about the same person. They would all be exactly the same, but they're not the same, and they're not the same for a reason. There's a purpose behind their being different. Um, there's a purpose behind everything that God does, amen? And there's, it's no different here in this case. When the Gospels were written to us, they were written with distinct purposes, and therefore there are distinct differences between the four Gospels that are meant for our benefit and and ultimately for His glory. Imagine if you would, if you had four biographies written about your life, one written from your wife's perspective, another from your children's perspective, uh, your parents' perspective, and your friends' perspective. Each one of these biographies would be very, very different, right? Okay? Very, very different, right? Yet, at the same time, they would be about the same person and they would all be true, right? They would all be accurate. And so the Gospels are true, the Gospels are inspired, and where you see the differences in the recollections or the writings of the, of the different um, authors, those, those differences are there from, because of the perspective that the author is taking when writing the Gospel message to us. Okay? Um. The Gospels are four perspectives written by four people about Jesus Christ. Their difference is not based upon the relationship that each one of these men had with Jesus Christ, but the difference that these Gospels bear is based solely on God's determining factor on what we needed to know about Jesus Christ. In other words, God determined when, writing the, when having the Gospels, when inspiring the Gospels, if you will, what we needed to know characteristically about Jesus Christ, and that is why the Gospels are different. And each one of them focuses on a different characteristic of Jesus Christ. In Ezekiel, you don't need to turn there, but there are two passages of Scripture that, give us, uh, that describe this. And um, they describe it in a way that we can see the glory of God and the glory of God as displayed in each one of the Gospels. I'm just going to read to you out of Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, which is the description of the glory of God. And it's described through the um, illustration of this beast. The Bible says, "...and as for the likeness of their faces, each had, the, had a, the face of a man or a human face, the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle." So you have four faces here in Ezekiel 1 and verse 10. You have the face of a man, you have the face of a lion, you have the face of an eagle, and you have the face of an ox. Uh, this same beast is described for us in Revelation chapter number 4 as we get into a description of heaven, and we see all of these, um, these people or, or things around the throne of God and a, and a depiction of these beings around the throne of God. There's one being, again, with these same four faces. The Bible says in verse seven of chapter number four, "The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox, the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature uh, had an eagle, was like an eagle in flight. In each one of those, we have described for us the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ while on the earth. Okay? Matthew, and we'll look this morning at Matthew, we're going to unpack Matthew um, for you. Matthew is described by the face of the lion. It's a very, it's a strong depiction of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his royalty. It describes the, the sovereign nature of Christ. Mark is de- depicted by the ox. It is a picture of his servanthood, um, all of the work that Jesus Christ did to serve us, and we'll look at that next week. The third week, we'll look at Luke, which is a description of Jesus Christ as a man, uh, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save us. And the reality of it is, had Jesus Christ not been fully man, he would have not been a sufficient Savior for us. He had to be fully man in order for us to experience, in order for us to partake in the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. He writes an entire book, the book of Luke, to make sure that we know that Jesus Christ was 100% man. And then he writes the book of John, which is described by the eagle, which is an animal that hovers between heaven and earth, which is a a picture of God, that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He had two natures. And again, this is not something that uh, we take lightly or we look at with just a, a surface brush, a serious theology that needs to be dealt with if we're going to understand who Christ is and the fullness of his nature and experience the wonderful um, redemption that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In Matthew chapter number 2, obviously this is the Christmas season, so we're focused totally on the birth of Christ. So I want to just give you a little bit of a distinction in Matthew chapter number 2 of Matthew's depiction of the birth of Christ, distinction from the other uh, three Gospels, and then we'll get into unpacking Jesus Christ as king. If, you, if you're taking notes, that would be the title of this message, The Christ of Christmas King. And Jesus Christ is king. In Matthew chapter number 2, we have one, dis, one primary distinction mentioned to us about the birth of Christ. And I'll just read the text to you beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was in Bethlehem, was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And we can stop there. This is very distinct for the book of Matthew. You do not have the wise men coming in, in the other Gospels because Matthew is distinct, a distinct description of Jesus Christ as being the king. And it's not just that Jesus Christ is necessarily the king the king. Uh, of everyone Matthew is a very Jewish book it's a very Hebrew book and it, and it and it and its focus is really on Jesus Christ being the king of the Jews and Jesus actually tells his disciples um, a few times in the book do not go to the gentiles but i want you to go to the Jews so the focus of Matthew is, is very Jewish in nature, Jesus Christ uh, leading, having a kingdom, a literal kingdom, and him leading over the, or fulfilling all of those promises of the Old Testament to, to rule the Jewish people, to be their king. And what's amazing about Jesus Christ is all the promises that he made to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, he he has not forsaken those promises. Those promises are and will come true. Matter of fact, what we know from Scripture is that every promise that Jesus Christ ever made will, at some point in time, come true. Amen? Amen? So not just to the Jews do do they have the hopes of these promises, but the Gentiles have hopes of promises as well. But what, but what I want you to know is the promises that God made to the Jews in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled have not been forsaken. Romans chapter number 11 tells us that very thing, that the Lord is going to restore back to the Jews. He is going to establish his kingdom with the Jews, and we as the church are going to reign with him. And the Bible talks about in Revelation 19 that we're going to come with him in the clouds. When the gospel is preached on all the earth, then these things will take place. He talks about um, a number of different things that that, that help us to understand this. Here in this verse, he talks about that the wise men come and they come seeking after a king. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And uh, you can go on with me, for we saw his star when it rose and... Have come to worship him, and when Herod heard about this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, as it is written by the prophets, and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is the distinction in the book of Matthew that is different from the other Gospels in regards to his birth because Jesus Christ in Matthew is being taught to us as our king. When, when we think about the, the, the baby laying in the manger and we think about all the things that he accomplished, we, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is, a, this is, this is not just any child, this is the king. This is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. In Matthew 1, he talks about that Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. A very distinct reference to the Jewish people. Jesus Christ has come. This baby in the manger is is the fulfillment of promises that have been made for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And now, now it's all coming to fruition. There's an excitement about, for some, there's an extraordinary excitement about the coming of Jesus Christ because of the reality that their hope is that he will be their king. And we know that he doesn't establish his kingdom then, but one day will. At the same time, there is also great animosity towards him because of the fact that he is going to be the king and he is the king. Let's look at a few things this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at about five or six points, and uh, and then come with a conclusion. Number one is the evidence of the evidence of Jesus Christ's kingdom, the evidence of Jesus Christ's kingdom. I'm going to give you just some basic uh, thoughts and um, points that you can put down uh, that describe the whole book of Matthew. We won't be able to go to all the text because of time, but. But put these thoughts down, and as you read through the book of Matthew, you'll see them coming to fulfillment. Jesus Christ is referred to in the book of Matthew as the son of David. Between six and ten times, he's referred to as the son of David, which points us back to the fact that his heritage comes through the line of David. David is promised in the Old Testament that his kingdom would be established forever, that uh, upon his throne... The, the, the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to sit, and the fulfillment of that is, is described for us in the book of Matthew as being that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David in the Old Testament and is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and will one day be established for us and for the Jewish people as well forever. Jesus is also referred to in this book as the son of Abraham, which points us back to his Jewish heritage. Jesus is called the king in the book of Matthew. He's referred to as the king. He affirms it for himself. You'll remember in Matthew chapter number 11, John the Baptist sends disciples to... to, uh, John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends disciples to Jesus, and he says to them, "'Are you the one?' Are you the one? Are you the king? The essence of the question is, are you the king? And the the scripture, what Jesus does is Jesus goes and he confirms from the Old Testament, he talks about the blind see and the the lame walk. He talks about all of the things that are from the Old Testament that would identify that Jesus Christ is the one. He doesn't specifically say that I am the one, but there is no doubt in John the Baptist's disciples' minds that Jesus Christ is the one. He is the one. And we know that he's the one this morning because we've seen his work in our own hearts, haven't we? It's so amazing that, that people who do not know Christ, they have not experienced the work in his life, they struggle with the, whether or not even the, even, the, um, even the fact or the reality that Jesus Christ was the king. They even struggle with whether or not he even existed. But those of us who are believers or followers of Christ, we know in our hearts that Jesus Christ is the one. Ron, Ron mentioned as we were singing whatever... Uh, struggles we have or maybe it was Jeff but but we can go to Jesus Christ and we know that he is the one who's going to bring deliverance we know that we can trust in him we know that we can depend upon him but we only know these things because his spirit lives within us and it affirms for us that Jesus Christ is the king so Jesus confirms it for himself Matthew starts with in chapter number two with the wise men seeking after a king. Matthew concludes at the end with, the, with a writing over the cross in which he has hung that said, Jesus Christ, the king, or he is the king of the Jews. He is referred to at least eight times in the book of Matthew as the king of the Jews. Jesus is the fulfillment in Matthew, one of the primary words uh, in the book of Matthew is the word fulfillment. It is used 17 times. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. When God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter number 12 that through Abraham all of the nations of the earth would be blessed, Jesus Christ is that fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which says that through David, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God would be established forever. And Jesus Christ fulfills that. In Matthew 3 and verse 15, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of righteousness. He is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And you know the story, John the Baptist almost refuses him. And Jesus Christ says to him, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all righteousness. In chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He did not come to abolish the law, but he came to complete it. He came to satisfy it. He came to fulfill it. He was the perfect essence of one who did obey the law perfectly on our behalf and for us. There's no better king than one who has never broken the law. There's no one better to lead us daily than one who has never broken the law. He is the fulfillment of the law for us. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. We can go throughout the book of Matthew, and we will find prophecy after prophecy after prophecy being fulfilled from the Old Testament. And each one of them relates to Jesus Christ as being king Of the 28 chapters in the book book of Matthew, 23 times the Old Testament is directly quoted and 78 references are made to the Old Testament fulfillment of Jesus Christ being the King. One that we're most familiar with, Isaiah 9. And you can turn there with me if you would like. Isaiah chapter number 9. Verse 6. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a direct fulfillment in Matthew chapter number 4. Matthew actually makes a direct reference back to the first two verses of this chapter, basically bringing us into the idea that this whole chapter is about Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ is our king. He has fulfilled all things that were necessary to be the perfect king, the righteous king, the just king. He has the right to demand of us obedience and submission because he himself was also obedient and submissive. The terms king and kingdom are used in the book of Matthew 76 times. It's at least double of any other of the books of the Bible or or at least close to double any other books of the Bible. Luke would be a second to that. Jesus Christ is... King now and one day will be king in his kingdom on this earth. The essence of his kingdom, number two. Jesus Christ, King, is both prophetic and immediate. Again, we're reminded of the fact that in Revelation chapter number 20 and 21, or even 19 20 and 21, we have a description of the literal kingdom of Christ in which he will come down from heaven. He will come riding on a white horse with his his church with him. We will come riding back with him and he he will destroy his enemies and he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years. And then he will give us a new heaven and a new earth. His kingdom is prophetic. It will be established one day on this earth, a real and literal kingdom. His kingdom, and again, I I would point you to Revelation chapter number 20, chapter 19, 20, and 21. Um, Revelation 5 and verse 6, the Bible says that we will rule with him on the earth. We will rule with him on the earth. There's a kingdom, an earthly kingdom that Christ is going to establish for us to rule with him. Not only is Christ's kingdom prophetic, but Christ's kingdom is immediate. Meaning this, that Christ's kingdom, the Bible teaches us, is in us. It has been put inside of us. Anyone who is a believer is a part of Christ's kingdom. His kingdom is inside of you and inside of me. And yes, it's not a literal, physical kingdom where the earth is ruled. Remember this, it's not a kingdom where the earth is ruled by righteousness and justice, is it? But it is a life that is ruled by life and justice. It is an individual, it is a person in which the kingdom of God exists or lives or dwells that is, that, is, that is guided by justice and judgment, that is guided by love and compassion, that is guided by all of the things that the kingdom physically will be, is now began in you and in me. His kingdom is immediate. It is inside of us. The Bible tells us in Luke 17 and verse 21 Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Other versions say the kingdom of God is in you. And the word midst in the Greek is intos. It means inside or indwelling within you. The group of people in Matthew 23 are a group of people who would have sat in church every single time the doors were open. And I'm not one to sit here and tell you that sitting in church every time the doors are open is a bad thing. But if you think somehow it makes you better than somebody else, you're wrong. I want to be in a church every time the doors are open too, but I do not think it's going to make me any better than anybody else. Number four, the environment of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Again, I don't have even, I don't even have hardly any time to to unpack this, but goodness gracious, read through the book of Matthew. Matthew 13 to 25 specifically deals with what the kingdom of heaven is like. 13 times in these chapters, the term used, the kingdom of heaven is like. It doesn't get any more plain than that, right? It's kind of like, I wonder what the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, okay, there you go. Matthew 13 through 25, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then you got it. you got to figure out what the kingdom of heaven is like. Listen to me, folks. The kingdom of heaven is amazing. It's something that we enjoy in our hearts right now, but it's something that we're looking forward to as being the dominant force in our, in our world. Imagine when what you have in your heart, and I pray that it's right, Ask yourself the question, if what I had in my heart right now dominated the world, would it be a better place or, not a, not a, or a worse place? Because if the kingdom of God is in you, and the whole world was dominated by what is in you, what would it be like? Let me give you some thoughts real quick here. The kingdom of heaven is a place where good will be separated from evil, the wheat from the tares. The kingdom of heaven is a place where, much will be, where, where where little will be much and little will accomplish much. The Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed that is so small but yet does such an amazing thing. The kingdom of heaven is like the five loaves and the two fishes that fed 5,000 people. Sometimes we think that, honestly, folks, is it not true? Sometimes we think of how insignificant we are. And and yes, in in many ways we are, but if the kingdom of heaven is within you, you might be five loaves and two fishes, but you can feed 5,000 people. God can use what you have as a part of his kingdom in amazing ways. So many of us are too focused on our five loaves and two fishes and not focused on the God of the five loaves and the two fishes. The kingdom of heaven is a place where little is much and little accomplishes much. Put that little leaven in that bread and pff, rises, right? You put that seed in the ground and this is what the kingdom of heaven is like in you and what it will be like in eternity. It's a place of finding and having the most valuable, joyful treasure that exists. Matthew 13, the 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 treasure or the pearl of great price. It's a place of forgiveness and justice, the parable of the debtor. It's a place of equality, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's a place of a wedding feast, the parable of the bride and the groom. It's a place of reward, the parable of the talents. It's a place of comfort, It's a place of satisfaction. It's a place of understanding, a place of reward, a place of inheritance, a place of mercy, and a place of belonging. Matthew chapter number 5, the Beatitudes. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. We look forward to it ruling in this earth. We look forward to the day that righteousness and justice and mercy and grace are the dominant factors in our world. But folks, we don't live in that world today. But this ought to be that world. Grace Bible Church ought to be a earthly picture of what we're going to experience in the kingdom of our Lord. And the only way that that takes place is if every individual that's sitting in here takes to heart the fact that the kingdom of Christ is in me. God's Holy Spirit is living within me and ought to be seen through me. Do you know why the church is a st- Do You know why God didn't choose just to take one individual person? And just to do his work through them, he chose to do it through the church as a corporate group of people. Do you know why God did that? Because it is a picture, it is the greatest display of God's power, not through individuals, but through the body of Christ. It is all of us together expressing the kingdom of the Lord. We get to do that. The kingdom is something that we look forward to, but the kingdom is also something that we should be living out in our daily lives. Entrance into the kingdom, number five. How do we enter the kingdom? Okay? Very quickly, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, entering the kingdom isn't easy, to say the least. The Bible says that it's difficult to enter into the kingdom of the Lord. The broad way is easy. The narrow way is very, very difficult, one of the things that you'll notice about the kingdom of the Lord in Matthew is it's an exclusive, it's an exclusive place. It's not an inclusive place. It's a place that there is a lot of there is righteousness at the, at the helm. And judgment. Matthew 7, 13, 14, entering into the kingdom of the Lord is not easy. Matthew 19, enter into the, entering into the kingdom of the Lord is impossible. Jesus describes it to his disciples that salvation, he says, is impossible for man... But it is possible with God. Amen? Entering into the kingdom is an act of God's grace in the life of an individual. It is impossible for us to merit our way into God's kingdom, but it is possible for God to grace us into his kingdom through the death of his son on the cross for our sins. Say, well, Pastor John, if the kingdom is all this, all these things, and I'm definitely not these things, how would I ever be able to enter into God's kingdom? Listen, it's about God's kindness towards people who have problems. You are not worthy of getting into his kingdom, therefore, you are a candidate of getting in. Right? Anyone who thinks themselves to be worthy or to make themselves worthy to enter is making themselves impossible for them to enter. Acknowledge your inability, acknowledge your frailty, acknowledge your sinfulness, and you have become a candidate, according to 1 John 1 and verse 9, of entering into God's kingdom. Matthew 16 tells us that we have to forsake everything to enter into the kingdom of the Lord. Matthew 13 says we have to treasure Christ above everything to enter into the kingdom of the Lord. Matthew 11 says we have to come to enter into the kingdom of the Lord. And Matthew 7 says we have to come asking, seeking, knocking to enter into the kingdom of the Lord. Exhortations about the kingdom, number five or six. Next number. The Lord exhorts his children in three ways in the book of Matthew. Number one, he says, and this is primarily Matthew 24, 25 uh, through 28. Number one, be watchful. Be watchful. The Bible tells us over and over again in the scriptures, be sober and be vigilant. Be ready, in other words. Be be watchful for the kingdom of the Lord. for For his coming. And it doesn't carry with it the idea of being watchful, meaning that we're sitting there looking up into heaven like his disciples were when he ascended. But, but the, idea, the idea of it is, is always be alert to the idea that the Lord could return at any time. It's the it's story of the man who had two servants, and he went on a long journey, and he told his servants, I will return, but I'm not going to tell you when. And one of those servants decided after the master had been gone for 2,000 years, right, or whatever the number might be, one servant decided, hey, he's not coming back, so I can do whatever I want to do. I can party and have fun and, and, and meet with the... And basically, he says to basically party and have fun and get drunk. I mean, this is the terms that he uses. Jesus says that the master will return, and when he does, he will find the servant who has decided to do what he wanted to do, and he will cast him into a place of judgment and torment. But he'll find the servant who said, I know my master is going to return, and I'm going to remain watchful. And when he does return, I will be faithful to doing what he has called me to do. Listen, folks, the generations that go by, we become less and less aware of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return. He is going to return. And he is going to hold accountable those who have rejected him For their rejection of him. This is going to happen. No different than all of the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the book of Matthew. All of the prophecies of the New Testament are going to be fulfilled. They are. You say, well, it's just been so long. That's exactly what he warns us about. Jesus Christ is coming back, and it could be soon. Be watchful. Number two, he says, be ready. He warns them to be ready. He uses the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. And these ten virgins, they're on this journey to the wedding, and the, and the wedding march is, gonna, is going by, and, and, uh, and, they, and the, they know the wedding march is going to go by at a certain time, and so five of them have not enough oil in their lamps. And they don't have enough, and so they ask the other five to give them some of their oil, and they say, we, we're not giving you our oil. Our oil is going to get us there. And they say, go into the town and buy your own oil. And they go into the town, and when they're in the town buying their own oil, guess what? Guess who goes by? The wedding march goes by. Then they chase after the wedding march, and they make it there, and the, and the wedding says, we don't even know you. Listen to me. The, the, the oil is the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of people who are living off of other people's Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of people who are living off the Holy Spirit of experience. But if you do not have the Holy Spirit living within your heart when the wedding march goes by, you'll be going into town to get another experience of the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to be living in your heart. Not to be an experience out here, which we, we, we enjoy those corporate experiences of the Holy Spirit, right? But folks, listen to me. If he's not in here and you and he comes walking by and you're like, hey, I've got to get another fix of the Holy Spirit, you're going to miss it. These are not my warnings. These are the Lord's warnings. Be ready. Be ready. When the, when the wedding goes by, when the king comes, be ready. Be ready. The Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Amen? Be active. Number three, be active. He tells us in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, and this makes really a lot of sense when you think about it from a kingdom perspective. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Behold, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're to be active. Again, like the servant who expects his master to return was to be active. Active, we also are to be active. We're to be gathering up people for the kingdom, preparing them for the return of Christ. As we reflect on this idea of Christ being, Jesus Christ being king, as we reflect on this, there are a few things that I want you to focus on in in closing. Number one, Jesus Christ sets the rules for his kingdom. His kingdom is an exclusive place. It is clear in the book of Matthew. It is also clear all throughout scriptures. Those who acknowledge Jesus Christ's lordship, those who acknowledge Jesus Christ's royalty, those who submit to Jesus Christ's leadership in this life, By faith and repentance, are guaranteed, are promised, the Bible says, to rule and reign with him when his kingdom is on this earth. That is a set in stone rule of Christ's kingdom. And no one's going to undermine or usurp the authority of the king. This is not a democracy, this is a theocracy. God makes the rules, and those who submit to them are blessed, and those who do not are not. Those who acknowledge Jesus Christ's lordship in this life by faith and repentance are promised to rule with Him in His kingdom. Those who reject Jesus Christ's lordship in this life through rebellion and pride are promised to one day face Him as their judge. This is no small thing. He is a king who is coming and he is coming to deal with his enemies and he is coming to reward his people. And we become his people by faith in what he did for us on the cross. Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33 says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. He sets the rules. Number two, everyone will one day bow to the knee, their knee to Jesus. Everyone will one day bow their knee to Jesus. Amen? Some will bow their knee to him as their gracious Lord and Savior, and others will bow their knee to him as their just and righteous judge. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, "'Therefore God hath highly exalted him, "'and given him a name that is above every name, "'that at the name of Jesus.'" Every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My challenge to you this morning is simple. Be like the wise men. Come to Jesus in humility and faith. Bring your life to him. Bring your life, maybe not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but bring your life to Jesus. Lay your life at his feet, and he will make something of it. Honor him, worship him, kneel down before him, for he alone is worthy. When we see these wise men, we see those who understand what it means to serve a risen Savior, to serve the King. Be like those wise men. Do not be like Herod, who sought to undermine, bypass, and replace Jesus Christ as king. His goal, although probably not known to himself, was to destroy the eternal plan of God by killing the only one who was able to accomplish it. Herod probably had no idea that he was simply a tool in Satan's hands. And what's sad is that a lot of us don't understand sometimes that we, by trying to undermine or replace Christ as king, while we trying to be the Lord of our own lives, we are playing right into the hands of the devil. May we come this morning... May we realize that we are worshiping a king. May we find ourselves in awe at him each and every day as we honor him for who he really is. I want to close this morning's, this part of the service. We're going to do the Lord's Supper as well, but turn with me to Revelation chapter number 19. When you're at home in your own time, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 13 through 16 are also very um, powerful. Listen as the Lord speaks to us in these verses Revelation 19 and verse 11, and then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a, in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the enemies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. And the, and the armies of heaven, let me say that right, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is the church. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of, wine of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, thank you so much that we can, for a moment, in frailty and emptiness, we can stand in and and understand a little bit about who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplishes and what he continues to accomplish and what he one day will accomplish. And Lord God, we get to be a part of that. And we thank you for those graces that you have bestowed upon us. I pray so that if there's anyone here that has not yet surrendered themselves to the lordship of Christ, you have promised in your word that anyone who acknowledges you or accepts you as the Lord believes in their heart that you were raised from the dead, that you live now, and confesses with their mouth they will be saved. I pray that you will begin even now to to penetrate any hardened heart that is here that needs to hear that message, to see Jesus for who he is, to fall down on their faces and worship him, to lay their lives before him. We just thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you have accomplished and what you will accomplish in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.